Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 2nd, 2022, and this is episode 3,159 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Friday. That means it is time for an expert counsel Q&A show, and I've got a good lineup for you today. Just kind of a real quick overview of what we'll be talking about. Uh, number one, of course, as always, leading off the, uh, the the whole show, we'll have Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini with the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights of the Week. Ron Paul will talk about the suicide of the alphabet agencies, a man can hope. Dan McAdams will talk about how the U.S. needs to tell Taiwan, something we don't really tell Taiwan, the truth. Chris Rossini will talk about how woke capitalism continues to attack small business even now that the uh, COVIDs is, uh, for all intents and purposes, over, using all of the things that were ginned up during the COVIDs. Tim Toolman Cook will talk about lithium-iron battery, lithium battery backups, and DeWalt Lawn Tools uh, with a rundown of all the lawn tools he's been using. Nicole Sauce will give you the lowdown on cottage food regulations and starting up a business in the space. Sean Mills will talk about running a garage hydroponics on a solar-powered system. Nick Ferguson will talk about care, shipping, and planting of bare root trees. Doc Bones will talk about dealing with a tooth extraction in a long-term grid-down scenario. That would be really bad, but it's something we may have to face. I have some thoughts on a certain movie and how it was very effective in making you feel a thing But the thing that was done would never have worked. And after Doc's thing, you'll understand why. And then I had a uh, live stream I did today. It lasted about 25 minutes. That'll be my anchor segment for today. But I think it's, it's important that we talk right now about Joe Biden's speech last night. But not what he said. Just the optics of it. The now infamous scene of Biden standing there looking like the dictator in either 1984 or V for Vendetta. This, the creepy-looking red backlighting, the standing Marines, the way the flags are. This was all done from a, from a, 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 uh, from a cinema standpoint, uh, a cinematography standpoint was what I was trying to say, um, with intention. Now, whether or not they get the result they're looking for, that remains to be seen. But it's not like they put this out and went, oops, I didn't know it was going to look like that. These were highly paid people. This was Madison Avenue marketing and cinematography. What message is being sent with this and to whom? That's what we'll talk about in my segment. With that, let's go ahead and drop on in and hear from Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini. How would the process go to eliminate the alphabet agencies? It, it wouldn't be easy because there's so many special interests and so much money involved and so much power involved. Uh, you could do it by gradualism. You know, if you had the votes there, you could do it. I don't think that too much. See, this subject comes up under the Fed, too. How do you get rid of the Fed? And uh, it, it's, it's not likely to happen through voting. But I think of some of these agencies, they're going to self-destruct. Don't you think 
right now, like the FBI, if they lose credibility, uh, you know, they lose effectiveness. And then sometimes what happens then, there will be a serious conference, you know, to uh, look it over and make it more sensible. But that's tinkering as far as I'm concerned, that we have to define what the relationship ought to be between the people and an agency like a police force of the FBI and even the CIA. And uh, that's when the Constitution comes into play. Because if if we do have that crisis, which we anticipate, at least I do, that it's going to be major, and there is going to be a revamping, and they'll have to revamp the uh, the monetary system, it shouldn't be just tinkering around. They're talking about uh, Bretton Woods too, you know, and this sort of thing. That's not going to solve the problem. They need real reform. And that's what we have to have. But people say, well, how do you do it? How do you do it? Well, you we could start by reading the Constitution. You know, the Ninth and Tenth Amendment are pretty clear cut. If it's not there, if it's not written in there, uh, agencies of government can't write into it. Courts can't do this and, and create these monstrosities because they're, it's the creation of these things that was so bad and getting rid of them is a real, real chore. I think the principle is the most important thing. If it isn't, uh, if it isn't authorized in the Constitution, the position that we should abolish it, and uh, that's where we should start. The other, the other issue about this, Dr. Paul, and let's put on this next clip from Zero Hedge, is the issue of moral hazard. Because we prop up Taiwan with weapons, we wink-wink implicitly give them support, we say they're an independent country, it emboldens them to do things they wouldn't normally do, which in turn threatens to draw us into their fight, which is not our fight. And here's something that came out on Hedge today. U.S. stocks sink after Taiwan fires at China drone. So the Taiwanese defense ministry uh, fired at a Chinese drone. You might say big deal, but they feel emboldened, I think, by this implicit U.S. backing. And then again, you see, and here's the journalist again, who Xi Jin, let's put this one on if you can, issuing a warning to Taiwan to stop shooting at their drones. He says, I advise the Taiwan troops not to shoot blindly. It's better to throw stones. If you shoot a drone that ordinary people play with, then that's that. But if you shoot the PLA's drones, you may trigger a war. So a warning, an escalation, uh, for what real purpose? We shouldn't be emboldening Taiwan. We shouldn't be involved at all, but we certainly shouldn't be emboldening them with the implicit idea that we're going to come to your aid because we're not. We're not going to fight China. We're not going to go to nuclear war with China over Taiwan. We should just say it, just like Ukraine was not going to be in NATO. Just say the obvious. And, you know, this agenda, this ideological agenda that's being pushed is very anti-small business. And we got a big taste of that during COVID. You know, take a look at, uh, we remember those policies. They benefited the big businesses, and they punished hard the small businesses. You know, don't shop in that little store where nobody is there. Close that down. Go shop with the crowds at Walmart. I mean, it made no sense, but the big guys were taken care of. The small guys, many, many, went out of business and destroyed lives for no reason whatsoever. It never had to happen. Now, today, we're experiencing inflation, which is another uh, effect of all the money printing. Well, who is who can weather inflation better, the big businessman or the small business guy? You know, I see the restaurants around me, their, their food prices are skyrocketing. It's making it harder to sell their products, but they have no choice. They have to stay in business. 
So today, even with inflation, small business is suffering. And I have another question. Who do you think those 87,000 IRS agents are going to go after? The big businesses that are going along with the woke agenda or all the small businesses? So small businesses under relentless attack. And the reason why is because they are outside of this agenda. You know, the big businesses, obviously, if they control them, they all say the same exact thing, do the same exact thing. You can't have a bunch of little guys out there just saying, you know, we're not a part of any of that. Come shop here. So they want to get rid of that to the degree that they can. And uh, that's why this woke capitalism is all about control. And the small business, you know, uh, is in the way. And they're obviously uh, doing things to get rid of them. Just a couple things. Um One, like I said with Dr. Paul, as far as the uh, agencies actually committing suicide, uh, a man can hope, a man can dream, and I agree. I just find, I, I find it interesting how much people still put faith in our Constitution, which has failed to prevent the government that it was supposed to prevent. So uh, in the words of Spooner, it either, it either authorized such a government as proven helpless to prevent it. And, and, and it, it, I, so I just have a, a, a true lack of faith. I'll point out when it's being violated, but I, I don't then believe in the fantasy that because it's being violated, it'll be fixed uh, in any significant level. Um, Dan, with his points on Taiwan, I think this hits on something he didn't really say that the average American is just clueless about. I think that the average person in America, if they even know what Taiwan is, assuming that they do know who and what Taiwan is, believes that Taiwan is an American ally and that we are pro-Taiwan independence and we always have been and we have their back implicitly. Speaker of the House of Representatives, Speaker of the Crypt, Pelosi, who just went to Taiwan infuriating the Chinese, etc., said during that trip, number one, that China was one of the freest nations in the world This is a, like this is not out of context, and she said some agency rated them that, so ask them about it. They really are. China is such a free country, and this is while while China is welding doors shut of citizens suspected to have been exposed to COVID. She's saying this, and she also said something that like just the MSN didn't say anything about it because it's not on the script to do it. America has always been for a one China policy. Do you know what a one China policy is? China absorbs Taiwan, and Taiwan becomes mainland China again. So Taiwan becomes to China what Hawaii is to the United States, except it's a hell of a lot closer to the shore. The Speaker of the House said, while traveling to Taiwan, that the America's official position is a one-China policy. Think about that and maybe re-listen to Dan's comments about us being honest with Taiwan. As far as small business goes, of course they want to attack small business. Small business leads to independence. Small business leads to you can't throw a switch and control things. They like big business for the same reason they like grains and agriculture. It's easy to quantify. It's easy to break into pieces. It's easy to control. It's easy to ration. Small business people have this weird habit of like innovating and doing what they think is best for their customers. Small business people have this weird habit of telling the federal government, I have a little, one little store in, in West Texas and it's all I got, so you can say whatever you want, but go screw. 
I'm going to be open. I'm going to serve my customers. I'm going to find a way around this. Anybody that's pro-government, that says they're pro-small business, I'm just going to say at this point, they're not even stupid. They're fucking liars. That's the truth. You can't be one and be the other. I'm sorry. If you're pro-big federal government, you're anti-small business. You're anti-small business. You're anti-small business. And if you say you're not, you're a liar. Let's move on to something a little bit more interesting. Let's talk about batteries for backup systems, in this case specifically lithium-iron batteries, and a rundown on the Walt Lawn Tools. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop to answer some more questions for the expert council. So let's dive right in. Today's question comes from my buddy Carson up here in Alberta. He says, hey Jack and Tim, how do lithium-iron phosphate batteries perform when connected to a charger? Details. When my dad built his house, he put in a normal sump pump, as well as a battery backup sump pump. He recently needed to replace the battery, and he has considered a lithium-iron phosphate, but was struggling to find answers on how it would survive, perform, hooked up to a battery minder on the backup sump pump. He tried emailing the manufacturer for answers, but language barriers caused understanding problems. Would one of these batteries perform well in this use case? Thanks, Carson from Canada. Okay, so that's kind of a two-part question. Number one, will these lithium-iron phosphate batteries work well for a battery backup sump pump? Short answer to that is yes. Now, as far as the other part, the trickle charger, they're not really designed for that. So let, let's go into it. Number one, the lithium-iron phosphate are really, really good at long-term storage. They hold their power quite well, but when they're constantly brought up to 100% charge, they will slowly discharge, of course, and that erodes the maximum capacity of the battery over time. So just about everywhere I read, started doing quite a bit of digging for you, it does not recommend using battery tenders, battery minders, trickle chargers on these lithium iron phosphate batteries. But that doesn't mean that they wouldn't be a good choice for these battery backups, because they can be discharged down quite deeply. There's some places that say you can discharge them 100%. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, it seems like keeping them discharged, no more than 80% discharged is probably ideal. And then recharge them. Now, some people recommend that you can use a standard battery charger for it, but overall, at least the manufacturers recommend getting the proper type of charger for that. But they're a great long-term storage battery that holds its charge really well, it can handle being fully discharged or very close to being discharged, and it stores best at 50 to 80% charge capacity. So would the lithium iron phosphate batteries work well for the sump pump? Yeah, I think they would. I just think you need to change the mindset a little bit and just charge them up every so often. Maybe every six months, go down, check the capacity, and then top it up. But I wouldn't, it does not seem like it's advised from any of the companies that make them to keep a trickle charger hooked up to it. So I hope that helps. There, there's so many conflicting reports and information out there on these lithium iron phosphate. And if Sean Mills has some more that he'd love to throw into this, I'm sure he can as well. But hopefully that helps, Carson. So number two, uh, I was asked to give an update on how my DeWalt lawn care equipment has been holding up. Some of it's three years old, but I have been running an entire battery-powered DeWalt lawn care system for two, basically two full summers now. And I love it. Uh, number two, one, one other thing is I've set up a solar system and I've been running 
I've been charging all of my DeWalt batteries off of solar. 100%. I've got uh, four Group 27 deep cycle batteries, two 100-watt solar panels, and that has provided more than enough electricity to charge all of my batteries all summer long. So just in case you're looking at setting something like that up. So first off, uh, the DeWalt push mowers. I've got to say, number one, still completely happy with how they've held up. The runtime, the power is great. They're in better shape now at two years later than any gas mower, any push gas mower I've ever had. So they've held up really well. The 20-volt weed trimmers, they're not designed for commercial use. I've burned out two of them in two years, but the 60-volt with a quick attach, love it. With that upgraded Husqvarna head, I've had nothing but good luck with that. That thing is as powerful as I want for what I need to use. As far as runtime goes... It is a battery hog. I tend to run it in low mode, and I've had pretty good luck with that. Um, have a handheld blower. Ah, that's neither here nor there. But the other two things I wanted to give you guys an update on is the cordless hedge trimmer. If you're looking at one of those, I love them. The extendable ones with the add-on pull pieces have been great. Even when you buy it, you pick it up. In my original review for two years ago, I said, boy, this plastic here on the joint doesn't feel great. It's held up awesome. I love having uh, an extendable hedge trimmer that helps you reach up over top, but helps you walk along, saves your back a ton. And then finally, the item that I love the best is the DeWalt pole saw. I've used that for three full summers now, use it for absolutely everything I want. It is, to me, way better than having a gas-powered one. Probably the only piece of DeWalt landscaping gear that I've been slightly... Uh, disappointed in would be the 60 volt chainsaw, 16 inch bar on it. It's, it's a nice saw. It works great for small junking, but it is totally underpowered. You would never want to do any amount of junking with that for firewood. But as far as what I use it for in residential lawn care environments, it works great. And as far as that pole saw goes, that thing looks as good as the day it was bought. And it has tons of power, it's light, it's well-balanced. So if you guys have been looking at making the jump into, well, for me, in my instance, DeWalt cordless lawn care gear, I've got nothing but great things to say about them. You know, there are, the one thing is they tend to be, you know, 80 to 90% the power of gas, but the benefits so outweigh it. I, you've got no noise, you've got no fumes, you've got no heat, you've got no spill, you've got no gas storage. I just love it. So I figured I would give you that update to let you know how the DeWalt cordless lawn care gear has been going. So guys, if you want to catch up with me, the quickest way is toolmantim.co. Run by there. Check out the website. I got uh, toolmantim.shop with a ton of gear that I recommend. And then, of course, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday evening, 7 p.m. Mountain Time is the live stream of the Workshop Podcast. We stream on Facebook, YouTube, Float, Twitch, Odyssey, and a bunch of other spots. So come by. Introduce yourself. Become part of the community. I would love to hear from you. Guys, and as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. I, I have to say, I've been exceedingly impressed with everything that I've used from DeWalt in kind of the uh, the backyard maintenance world, and specifically uh, the weed eater. And as Tim mentioned, replacing the, uh, the stock head that comes on it with the Husqvarna head uh, has just... It is, it is so night and day above any other cordless weed eater that we've ever tried. That it's 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 not even worthy of comparison. 
Uh, I don't own the little chainsaw, but it's pretty badass. I've used one, including the lopper one. Um, I've not even seen one of the lawnmowers, but if Tim says it's good to go, it, it probably is. And I, I think that there is a, you know, we, we, we kind of beat up on the electric car once in a while, not because of the tech itself, but because the grid's not ready for it. But I think a lot of these types of tools are ideal uh, to begin moving off of gas-powered and onto electric power, especially for the person that owns, you know, the typical yard that doesn't, you know, they're not, they're not mowing 10 acres. They're mowing a third of an acre or a quarter acre or tenth of an acre. Uh, they're weeding a couple hundred line of fence. That's all they're doing. Uh, we use the weed eater here, and we have three acres. We have no problems. Anyway, with that, let's move on. Let's talk about the cottage food industry with Nicole Awesome Sauce. Hey, everyone. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast. And I have a question in from Corey. It's about cottage food law. It's not really a question, but he wants to know the trials and tribulations of starting a food-based business under cottage law. And based on how it was worded, Corey, I feel like you're just sort of looking for a reason not to start. Trials and tribulations of cottage law. That's going in negative, right? But I'll talk to you anyway. Let's start with what is cottage food law. Cottage food laws exist at your state level. If you have them, not every state is friendly towards small food businesses, but a lot of states are. They have decided smaller businesses that produce foods And this is more than just picking foods off the fields. This would be something like baking bread and selling bread, for example, or selling jam. They have decided that at a certain scale and for low-risk foods in many cases, if you only sell direct to consumer, if you only sell in your state, they have different, less stringent regulations for you to follow because the feds have no right mixing about in your business if you are not engaging in interstate commerce. So cottage food laws are a way to roll back some of the crazy onerous regulations that are being instilled on food manufacturing and food distribution by the FDA. Most cottage food laws are focused on very small scale and home production. And the only good way to navigate the labyrinth of the laws is to chase down information in your specific state. What is okay for me to do in Tennessee is not okay for you to do in Oklahoma necessarily because it's at the state level for commerce in the state. In Tennessee, the Ag Department and your county health inspectors are your best, most up-to-date resources for information. In fact, we just had a big old rollback of even more regulation in our cottage food laws in the last few weeks, and our, our Department of Ag did a webinar on that so everybody would understand what the changes were. This is one of those times when talking to the inspector is not necessarily a bad thing, guys. If you want to just understand how they work, you don't have to tell them what you're doing. Also, a great resource for what's going on in states all over the country is the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. They track what the status is of cottage laws state by state level. However, they lag behind legislative sessions, which ended in like May, June this year. As I said, ours just really had a facelift that went into effect a few weeks ago. I looked on their site. Tennessee's not even up to date on their site yet, but it will be. They just It takes them a while to read all of these bills that have passed and been signed into law and then summarize them for their map. I have included a link, though, to the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund map, so you can just check that out. 
for Jack to share with this. And just know that some states have gone full anarchy and you can just do whatever. Maine has great open cottage food, we're out of your way sorts of things, for example. And really what this is, guys, is kind of a loophole that your state is giving you for things like butchery, egg production, meat production, baked Goods, canned foods, roasted coffee, all sorts of roasted coffee just got added in Tennessee's cottage law. I've been operating under cottage law for a long time in the state and coffee was never on the list. I was just going on a flyer that it would work. Right. Okay, so that's what cottage food law is. Now, let's go into the good. When you're operating under cottage food law, you're going to get less hassle from officials as you're starting your business. You're going to be small scale. You do not have to do the same sorts of things that a multi-million dollar or billion dollar food manufacturing company may be required to do by the FDA. And less hassle from officials is nice because you can be like, hey, man, I'm in Tennessee and I know that I am allowed to grow and uh, process on my property up to 2,000 chickens or 3,000 chickens, whatever the number is, and sell them direct to consumer and you can't do jack about it. That is something you can do here. Now, you take this next door to Mississippi. I don't know the answer to that question because I don't live there. But every state has a different one. In fact, we just added rabbits here. Rabbits are now considered poultry, basically, in our state. And we can now raise and sell rabbits. We could not do that a year ago. They didn't know what to do with rabbits. So it was safe to process and sell chickens on your property a year ago, but not rabbits because they're totally different. And um, therein lies the rub. Getting into the why of it, just stop asking why if you're going to go into cottage law. They're not really necessarily logically based. It's based on who has pushed through something at the state level And really, things are not safer if you give them away for free or if you sell them. They just figured out how to regulate them if you sell them. The other cool thing about cottage food law is it adds trust to some of your buyers who really feel like the government should be looking over people's shoulders to keep them safe. Uh, I don't know if you want those as your customers, but there you go. It is there and it is a thing. It also serves as not a bad way to get started in a food business because you can start under cottage law and see on a small scale, is this a viable idea? And then if you've decided, yep, we're going to go for it, then you can worry about the other thing. Now, here's the bad part of cottage law. Nothing and in no way do cottage law regulations prepare you for the seven layers of hell you may need to go through when you decide to go beyond your state borders or grow very large. Nothing about cottage law really relates much to what the FDA or USDA will want, depending on who you need to work with closely as you build your business. And the only way to assess what that looks like is to reach out and ask and have them help you go in that direction or hire a consultant to defrag the Food Safety Modernization Act for you and how that impacts the policy in your state for how you do things. And we've all heard about some of the crazy things that they ask you to do. The other bad part is you are confined to sales in your state only. And sometimes that can mean that you're not even allowed to put up a website, depending on what your state interprets as selling in your state only. Some states are really weird about it. They're like, no, you can't say you have eggs for sale. Not on your website. People in other states could see that. Yep. Gets a little weird when you start talking the specifics of how this stuff is rolled out. 
Interestingly enough, though, when I talked to the FDA about being a manufacturing facility for coffee, what I discovered is within the within the food manufacturing world, if you're under a certain gross annual revenue number, which I think is five, it's either five million or five hundred thousand, they basically aren't going to mess with you anyway. So that would be a reason you want to reach out and ask, like, how much are they really regulating me anyway until I'm of a certain size? So as far as trials and tribulations, as a business that started under cottage food law originally, um, I didn't really have any. I had an inspector who cared a lot about safe food, who didn't think that coffee was unsafe food, roasting coffee, and was quite helpful in linking me with resources. That could have gone differently. That is inspector specific. But my general interactions with most inspectors has been they're not trying to trap you like we feel like the IRS is when they audit us. In general, they are the people on the ground are motivated by how do we keep people from getting food poisoning. So I don't think there are a lot of trials and tribulations. The only thing I would say is cottage food, if you have that option at your state level and you're adhering to the basic framework they've put in place, you're less likely to get a very uncomfortable warrant served on your rear end (laughs) as you start because you can be like, hey, I'm operating under cottage food law. On the other hand, states where you're required to register yourself means you are now on a list and they've got your eye on you. So you got to make that decision for yourself. If you do operate under cottage law, don't. And don't stick to the regulations, though. You still are opened up to hassle. And the thing is, if you just start, if you just start and ignore everything, you're also opening yourself up to hassle if somebody notices you. And this is the thing. Most of the inspections that happen are based on complaints and so just do with that information will with what you will. Uh, other things to consider if you're thinking about starting a food business is you might look at what can you do, like if you become a membership organization, does that change your need to adhere to things? I know Neethi from Farm to Fork Meat Riot operates a food church. I know that John Moody operates a cooperative shared grocery buying club that is a membership organization, and they've been able to use that status to push back on things that their local officials wish they could regulate about the food that they produce and sell, but are not able to under that protection. Again, at that point, you should be talking to a lawyer and looking at how you are defining your business and how that's going to serve you in the future. There is, though, also the concept of decide if you're just going to do it, if you're just going to do it to see if it works. That is a personal decision. You need to weigh the risks and decide what that looks like. I think the risks are very different if you're doing that with something like meat or raw milk or a higher risk food or something that needs to stay refrigerated versus if you are doing it for something like a loaf of bread. And then it doesn't ever hurt to find out what it would take to launch 100% legitimately. There are different regulations for a manufacturing facility versus a cafe or restaurant versus if you're going to be doing butchering, like all of the different ways that we can process food have different regulations 
from the food safety handling side, from wastewater treatment, from source water testing, all of these things. It's very helpful to know what am I looking at investment-wise to do this full bore and, you know, is there, for example, a gross revenue number amount under which I'm less likely to be scrutinized by the FDA? Those are all things to consider. I hope this helps you decide what you're doing moving forward. I didn't really know what kind of business you were starting, so I couldn't really tailor it to if it's canned foods or cookies, two very different to, to dried teas, right? There's lots of different things you can do. Speaking of cottage food and food, if you love premium home roasted or rather roasted to order coffee, it's no longer home roasted. I now have a facility. You can get it at hollerroast.com. And if you are an MSB member, you get $2 off a pound. So it's definitely worth logging in and checking out that discount there. That's all over at hollerroast.com. With that, guys, go out and make it a great week. So love everything there. I want to put a little bit of caution out there. We were just having this this discussion in one of the Telegram groups with this membership stuff. I'm all for doing anything that you can to circumvent the state. There's a lot of talk about private membership associations, though, right now that seem to be ignoring the reality of what's happened with them in the past. There's a guy here in Texas. I can't remember his name. I need to get him on the show. He built one of the first really successful ones, and in, norm, in the beginning they were really geared toward the medical side of things. He went to freaking prison for like seven years on two things. One was openly advertising, apparently that ruins private member associations, and two was taking members from more than one state. Now, are there new things we can do there to, to protect ourselves? Maybe. I don't know, but I think a lot of times... If you want to run, like, especially in kind of the food industry, cottage food, whatever, a business, a lot of times not trying to throw it in the face of the state is a much better way to go uh, than trying to throw it in the face of the state. I'm just saying, and be careful with this idea, because basically you can create a legal Zoom-like site for any structure of anything, and it doesn't mean you really understand what you're being protected with or not, And, and I'll just say openly, at times I worry for Neethi. And if anything happens, I'm going to be there. We'll run a legal defense fund or whatever. But I'm not sure that it's as protected as we would wish that it was from the type of government that we're going to talk about in my segment today. And I think that there is something to be said for if you're going to thumb your nose at the state a little bit, thumb your nose at the little S state, not necessarily the big S state. In other words, the state of Tennessee or the state of Florida or the state of Texas versus the state, the super state of the United States of America. Um, being prosecuted by the federal government is a whole new level of bad. I'll just say that. A lot of things that at a state level you could end up plea bargaining down to a fine. At a federal level, they'll put you in prison. And the conviction rate in front of federal juries is, is insane. It makes you question whether any of those trials are actually fair. The conviction rate alone. Let alone the percentage rate at which a prosecutor in front of a federal grand jury asks for an indictment and that they get it. Look it up. Just, just be careful with some of this stuff. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying be careful. Make sure you know what you think you know. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about using a solar-powered system in your garage, in your garage, to run a hydroponic system. 
Hey everybody, it's Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com and I'm back from my about six month hiatus uh, caused by my day job, been very busy and uh, I appreciate everyone's patience but uh, we're going to get some questions run through for uh, for Jack and the team. So, uh, starting off, uh, hi Jack, hope it's all, all is well. I'm debating whether to get solar panels and batteries or running electricity to my garage. Uh, there is a tool distributor in my area um, offering a, the following deal on panels. And he provided the link to Northern Tool. Uh, it's got a little small 110-watt uh, solar kit with a charge controller and inverter, about a 300-watt inverter. Uh, this system is going to power a hydroponic system for growing greens over the winter. So good on you for um, getting that... Uh, uh, overwinter green growth happening uh, in, in the garage. Uh, so I'd love to know what you think of the panels and whether I should run a line to the garage or go solar. There is no power in the garage at all, and it's about 200 feet from the house either way, starting from scratch. Thanks, Andy. Well, Andy, I checked out the deal. It's not a bad starter kit. So it's a 110-watt panel uh, with a PWM or pulse-width modulated charge controller. Uh, does not include the battery and includes a 300-watt inverter. A lot of the utility from that is going to depend on the system itself. So what are you actually charging, or rather, what are you actually running um, off of this inverter? So the uh, the system is about 250 bucks for 110 watts, and you'd have to add a battery, which you know realistically at minimum you're going to talk about another 100 bucks. So call it 350 uh, to get this system up and going. Uh, of course, you'll be very very limited in what you can actually run. So it could run some lights but probably not lights and a pump, for example. Um, honestly, for this application, I would run an extension cord. 200 feet is not a lot of distance, uh, especially for you know 110 volt. Um, assuming you can see the garage from the house, I would add a light, you know, something small, two to three watts, that's visible from the house. So you can literally just look out the window and see whether the, the system is up and running. Um, I personally learned the hard way that assuming things are plugged in the way you left them is not a good tactic. Uh, I once had a chest freezer in a detached garage uh, that had elk, mule deer, pronghorn, and tuna uh, in it. And my landlord came over and unplugged it to plug his battery charger in uh, for a drill while we were doing some work on the house. Uh, we worked about a half day. On his way out, he unplugged the drill and plugged the freezer back in, or so he thought. Uh, in fact, he actually plugged in a circular saw whose plug was laying near where he tossed the freezer plug. So he just grabbed the wrong one. It was an honest mistake. Uh, I didn't find out about it until about a week later. I walked in the garage. It was really foul smelling. And, um, yeah, we lost about 50 mils worth of, at least 50 mils of irreplaceable meat. This was all meat that had been uh, hunted or fished. And, um, you know, it was stuff that just couldn't be replaced. So... Um, it's always a good idea to have a visual indicator that everything is going okay. You don't want to walk out to go harvest some greens and everything be dead. Um, I would suggest plugging the system into a kilowatt meter. Uh, that way you can see what your daily and weekly draw is. Um, and then next winter, you'll know exactly how much solar you would need based on those two pieces of information and how much it costs in electricity to power the system. Then you can determine whether the payoff is really worth it to go solar. Uh, if you really wanted just to have some bad weather resiliency built in, I would suggest just going with a small battery backup system with an inverter and a plug-in charge controller. If the power goes out, 
Um, you have the battery backup for however long you design the system to be self-sufficient. So two batteries get you a week worth of um, energy, then you're good to go. You could have that plugged in in the house on a cart ready to be rolled out wherever you needed it uh, in the event that the power went out. I uh, assume you'll have a generator to run the house, but that's how I would go about this. Um, $250 to run a system that's probably not even going to handle the loads that you have um, is pretty high. And if you do it this way, you end up with some nice heavy-duty um, extension cores that you can use on a lot of other systems or, or to do other things with. Uh, and if you go with the battery backup system, you can use that for a whole lot of things other than just um, this one little uh, application in the garage. So I hope that answers your question. Good luck to you. And uh, guys, get the questions in. I'll keep answering. I got a little bit of a backlog. So here over the months of, uh, call it August and September, maybe even to October, you'll probably be hearing uh, some older questions get answered. I'm going to do one on the new... Um, um, inflation bill and, and what kind of solar provisions are there and how that's going to impact uh, both supply chain as well as uh, what it costs to put a system in over the next, call it six to 18 months. And um, But yeah, get those questions in. I'll be sending them to Jack and Jack can determine at what order he plays them. Thanks. Well, the only thing I'll add going specific to the application, solar to power hydro. Probably the thing that moves water for the least energy is air pumps. Air pumps, like, I'm talking air pumps that you use for a fish aquarium. These things are incredibly low draw. For instance, there's a, a product I recommend on the website. I wouldn't use it for hydro, really, except maybe as a backup, right? Uh, it's called a bubble box. They sell for about 8 bucks. You put 2D batteries in them, and they run for like 50 to 60 hours continuous. Now, it's not a huge volume of air, but it definitely keeps a bucket full of minnows alive. So a system running four or five aquarium pumps, each running a couple air stones, you, you can do hydro without having to move water with a pump, is what I'm getting at, depending on the type of hydro and what have you. And so if, if you really wanted a resilient hydro system on minimalist solar, I would look to air pumps. That's... All I'm saying with that, because the efficiency is there. And they do not need to run continuous at all, period, especially if you allow somewhat of a gap, crack key-like, for your plants uh, in the tanks that you're growing them in. And so it would be possible to, uh, either with timers, uh, reduce the load uh, so that you could run more overnight, or simply you could actually run a direct solar to your pumps, and sun comes up, the air runs. Sun goes down, the air stops. It'll be fine overnight. It'll be fine overnight. It'll be fine overnight. It'll be fine overnight. Just a different way to come at the same situation. Um, I also think doing things for a reason, but yet to learn, is really valuable. I feel that going on here a little bit. If you can build a solar system with a couple batteries and an inverter and... A, charge controller and a few solar panels. If you can build that, you can build a giant solar. It's all the same. It's all this. It's all this. You've made a scale model. So I think that, like, I'm going to learn how to do this and I'm going to have this, this result. I think there's a lot of value in that, too. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about bare root trees with Nick Ferguson. Nick Ferguson here from HomegrownLiberty.com with another answer for you guys in the TSP community. This one is on caring for, storing, and shipping bare root trees. 
All right, this is from Daniel. Good morning, Jack. I really enjoy your show. This question could either be for you or Nick Ferguson. What is the best way to care for, store, and prep to ship trees bare root? I need to do further research, but have loads of redbud, oak, cedar, and a few others on my property. Daniel in Tennessee. Best regards. All right, I'm guessing Jack sent me this question because I actually sell bare root trees every year through rareplantstore.com. Um, and uh, for everyone emailing me, we're not going to have anything up on the website until January 1st. That's when it launches every year. Um, so that's when we're going to have uh, new stock up there. It all I have to wait until I see what the wholesalers have available before I can put any packages up there and figure out what we're going to be able to offer. So, um, but to answer your question, Daniel, well, if you are digging seedling trees growing in native soil, you're going to have to put in a lot of work digging those trees in such a way that you can get most of the roots with the stem. Uh, Most of these trees that have been growing in an understory, they're very small. They might be several years old, and they might have quite extensive root systems that are spanning a large area. So if you dig them up, you might find that there's not very many feeder roots closer to the tree because it's not a brand new little seedling. It might be five years old and it's just tiny because it's an understory. So just bear that in mind. Um, And this can only be done in winter when the tree is dormant. You can do it other times, but most likely the tree is just going to die if you do that. So only dig these in winter when the tree is dormant. Uh, Think about it like surgery. If uh, you're going in to get something cut out of your body, Uh, You don't want to be awake for it because it'll be very traumatic for you. It'll cause a lot of pain, um, and your body won't handle that amount of stress. Um, That's why we have general anesthesia. So we want to cut these trees up when they are under general anesthesia, which is when they're completely dormant during winter. So uh, in addition to that, you're going to need to be able to positively ID each one of those trees and tag them in such a way that you'll know what tree is what when there's no leaves on it. So let's say you have a whole bunch of red bud and you have some red marking tape. Well, put red marking tape on all of your red buds and your oaks. Maybe you have some brown electrical tape or cedar might have green marking tape or whatever. Just do something like that so you can positively identify them. Uh, so that when you dig them up later, you'll actually know what you have. Um, And also, so you can find them. Um, Once the trees are dug, you need to keep them cold and moist. I like to pack them in moist potting mix in a bag or bucket in a fridge. You could use sawdust, anything like that that's going to keep the roots moist. You don't have to keep them in a fridge if you have a cold enough winter. Uh, You could always dig them up and then rinse the roots off, um, pot them up, so that they're easy to pull and ship out later during the winter. Um, the, the trees just need to stay cold enough to stay dormant if you keep them outdoors. So if you have a, uh, a warm spell, you might actually want to cover them with a blanket so that they don't warm up. Um, it's not good to ship those trees as bare roots if they're breaking dormancy or have woken up and are growing. That's why when I get my trees in from wholesalers, they go directly into a refrigerator, and I keep them about 36 degrees. I keep them cold 
I do not want them waking up, and I keep them moist. The basic rules are to always keep the roots damp, not completely saturated, and preferably not shut away from any oxygen. You need to have air in contact with the trees, the trunks, and the soil that they're packed in to keep them from rotting. If you just wrap it up really tight in plastic, um, there is a chance that it could just go anaerobic and rot. The most important thing is to keep them moist. If they dry out, even for a few minutes, you can have a massive amount of tissue damage to the delicate roots and end up with dead trees. That's why when I get ready to ship trees, they stay in soil or in a bucket of water, and they're pulled directly from there, immediately wrapped in moist paper and bagged. They don't ever get a chance to dry out even for a second. Uh, dry roots on vascular plants is death. So that's all I have for you on that question. I hope that answers your question. If you need more info on it, I'm happy to give you some more info on it. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. So with that, let's go in here from Doc Bones on the need to potentially do a dental extraction during a long-term grid-down situation where you're the highest level of medical provider that there is. It's kind of scary, and it should be. But this was the reality in the world until just about 150 years ago. It was like this everywhere all the time. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the award-winning Amazon Top 20, fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. In a survival scenario, the family medic is going to be called upon not only to care for medical issues, but dental as well. Military medics during the Vietnam War reported that they dealt with dental problems almost as often as medical. While dental training was relatively informal back then, a special operations combat medic today may train to become a special operations medical sergeant, undertaking training not only in dental care, including extractions, but other outside-the-box skills like veterinary as well. When the miracle of modern dentistry isn't around to save a damaged tooth, we have to return to tooth extraction as the treatment of choice for most dental emergencies. In any situation that involves long-term loss of power, the medic will eventually be confronted with a tooth that has to come out. Indeed, the grand majority of dental emergencies can be resolved that way. Tooth extraction is not an enjoyable experience as it is. It's got to be less so in a long-term survival situations with no power and limited supplies. Unlike baby teeth, a permanent tooth is unlikely to be removed simply by wiggling it out with your hand or tying a string to it in the nearest doorknob and then slamming the door. Knowledge of the extraction procedure with limited supplies is going to be important for anyone expecting to be the family caregiver off the grid. Yes, you heard me. I'm going to actually tell you how to extract the tooth. Be aware, however, that it's illegal and punishable by law to practice dentistry without a license. The lack of formal training or experience in dentistry may cause complications that are much worse than a bum tooth. If you have access to modern dental care, seek it out. Once a decision has been made to remove a tooth, recent studies suggest that giving 800 milligrams of ibuprofen before dental procedures helps relieve post-extraction pain significantly. Have a good supply of this useful medication in storage and maybe some clove oil to dull the pain. Notice that I haven't mentioned local anesthesia injections. Well, in a situation where the defecation hits the oscillation, well, you're going to be off the grid and won't have lidocaine to use as a local anesthetic. I write about situations where there's no functioning medical or dental infrastructure, so I'm explaining this procedure as if we were off the grid and stuck in an earlier era. 
It may sound unrealistic or even barbaric to you, but disasters happen, and the medic may find themselves in austere settings. The materials used are available in unique specialty kits, like the one we have in our store, which, by the way, comes with a copy of Where There Is No Dentist. Proper positioning will help you perform the procedure more easily. For an upper extraction, also called in maxillary extraction, the patient should be tipped at a 60-degree angle to the floor. The patient's mouth should be at the level of the medic's elbow. For a lower extraction, also called a mandibular extraction, the patient should be sitting upright with the level of the mouth lower than the medic's elbow. Right-handed medics should stand to the right of the patient. Left-handers to the left. For upper and most front-lower extractions, it's best to position yourself in front. For lower molars, some prefer to position themselves behind the patient. The medic needs to wash your hands and put on gloves. Also, I think a face mask and some eye protection would be a good idea. The area around the tooth should be kept as dry as possible so that it can be easily visualized. There will be some bleeding, so place cotton rolls or balls around the tooth to be removed. Uh, Rolled gauze squares will also work in a pinch. These may have to be changed from time to time. Teeth are anchored in their sockets by ligaments, which are fibrous bands of connective tissue. These ligaments must be severed to loosen the tooth. This goal is best accomplished with something called a dental elevator. An instrument can come in various shapes. Some may appear like a screwdriver with a very small head, others like a tiny chisel, a shovel, or even an arrowhead. Once loosened, instruments called extraction forceps are used to remove the tooth. These are specialized for each type of tooth, incisors, canines, premolars, molars. Indeed, there are more types of extractors than there are teeth. Once positioned, the procedure goes as follows. You separate the gum from the tooth. An instrument called a spoon excavator between the tooth in question and the gum on all sides will separate the two. If you skip this step, the gum may tear during the extraction, causing bleeding that will slow the healing process. Then you loosen the tooth. Use a dental elevator to go between the tooth and the bony socket. Use your index finger for support against the tooth in front of the one being extracted and apply pressure with the head of the elevator to get down to the root area. Your goal is to sever the ligaments holding the tooth in place. Expect some bleeding. Then you extract the tooth. Take your extraction forceps, grasp the tooth as far down the root as possible. This will give you the best chance of removing the tooth in its entirety the first time. If you can do this, the procedure is a lot less complicated. For front teeth, which have one root, exert pressure straight downward for uppers, straight upward for lowers. For teeth with more than one root, such as molars, a gentle side-to-side rocking motion will help loosen the tooth further as you extract. Once loose, avoid damage to neighboring teeth by extracting towards the cheek rather than towards the tongue. This is best for all but the lower molars which are furthest back, like the wisdom teeth. Not uncommonly, a tooth might break during the extraction. In this case, use your elevator to identify and further loosen the root. Then extract it from the socket using the instrument as a lever. You want to control post-extraction bleeding. You place some gauze in the bleeding socket, have the patient bite down. In most cases, bleeding should be light. If excessive bleeding occurs, products such as Actcel, A-C-T-C-E-L, or Kytazan hemostatic gauze can be cut into small, moistened squares and placed directly on the bleeding area. It should form a gel which can be rinsed away with water in 24 hours. Alternatively, layers of 2x2-inch gauze, which we call 2x2s, can be used to place pressure into the socket by closing the mouth. Occasionally, a suture may be required if bleeding is heavy and direct pressure with gauze fails. Use 4-ochromic catgut or 4-polyglycolic acid, Vicryl, absorbable suture material. 
Without some of these items, improvisations may be necessary. In a Cuban study, veterinary superglue, that's butyl 2 cyanoacrylate, was used very carefully, we hope, in over 100 patients with good success in controlling both bleeding and pain. Dermabond, a prescription medical glue, has been used in some cases in U.S. emergency rooms. After the procedure, liquids and a diet of soft food should be given to decrease trauma to the sensitive area. You may need a cold pack to help decrease swelling. Hot liquids and hard foods should be avoided for 24 to 72 hours. Expect some swelling, bruising, and pain over the next few days. For the first 24 to 48 hours, those cold packs will come in very handy. Afterwards, use warm compresses to help with jaw stiffness. Use medicines such as ibuprofen, 2 to 400 milligrams every 4 hours, or 600 to 800 milligrams every 8 hours for pain. Alternatively, acetaminophen, 500 milligrams every 4 hours, should also help for pain. Some stagger the two medicines, by the way. Begin warm salt water rinses after 6 to 8 hours. Stay away from aspirin, by the way, as it may hinder the protective blood clot that naturally forms in the socket. That blood clot is your friend, so make sure not to smoke, spit, or use straws. These actions might dislodge it and cause a condition called alveolar osteitis, or dry socket. With this condition, you'll notice the clot has disappeared and that the patient has throbbing jaw pain and very foul breath. Antibiotics and warm salt water gargles are useful here. A solution of 8 fluid ounces of water with 1 to 2 drops of clove oil may serve to decrease the pain, but don't use too much because it could burn the mouth. Although not all agree, antibiotics given just before and just after extraction may reduce the risk of infection and dry socket. Amoxicillin 500 mg, cephalexin 500 mg, or metronidazole 500 mg are options and are, at the time of this writing, available in veterinary equivalents and elsewhere. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget that the Members of Park Brigade gets a discount off orders of books, medical and dental kits, and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Check out our entire line and increase your family's level of medical preparedness. You'll be glad you did. Remember in the uh, intro that I said that this was a movie that just made me think of how many of you right now know what movie I'm talking about, Tom Hanks? Castaway. In that movie, if you've never seen, if you're one of like the five people that have never seen that movie, he gets a bad tooth, and he gets when he gets stuck on the island, it gets worse and worse and worse to where it is he's ready to kill himself. And a bunch of boxes walk wash up, wash up on the beach, and one of them has ice skates in it, and he ends up taking a blade of the ice skate, putting against a tooth, and smacking the other end of the ice skate blade as hard as he can with a rock to knock the tooth out of his mouth. Now. I'm going to tell you right now that I believe that your tooth could hurt bad enough for you to get that desperate. That's not what I'm questioning here. I don't think it would work. If anything, it would probably break the tooth. And I've had one tooth extracted in my life. And it was a poorly, it was a poorly filled tooth, and it decayed underneath the filling. The dentist earlier in my life screwed up. And so it went unnoticed until it was painful. And when I went in and the doctor took an x-ray, he said, this, this has got to go. And what Doc said is true. When, and this was like not a molar, not an incise. This is a, like a bicuspid. This is like a third or fourth tooth back. So it's got three roots, not four. And when he tried to pull it, he rocked it. And, all. and of course, I'm numbed up, and it still is not comfortable. And it took a, quite a while, and the tooth broke. And he had to separate the three roots with the drill. Basically cut through so that there, so he could pull each root out individually. 
I cannot even imagine the pain of what that would have been like to go through without anesthesia. So, I think one of the parts of preparedness is to not have an emergency in a bad time. And so one of the things I highly recommend is that if you have work that you need done dentally before you ever have to face that reality, you get that work done where you can go in and they can put some gas up your nose and make you not give a shit and pump you full of Novocaine and, 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 and pull the tooth out a hell of a lot more comfortably or do a root canal or do a proper filling or what have you. I'm just going to say that would probably be worth maintaining to the best of your ability. Because of all the situations that are easy to rectify now and hard to rectify later, that's at the top of the list. Oral pain is insane. And there was a time not so long ago where basically dental care was a couple people held you down and a guy pulled your teeth out with a pair of pliers. Because you put all the clove oil you want on it. It doesn't do much. It doesn't do much. All right, with that, let's drop into my live feed session today and discuss the optics of Brandon's dystopian movie scene in his speech last night. And we are live, and this will be a rather short live stream video, folks. This will be just my segment for the Expert Council Q&A show this week. Uh, we have a really great lineup this week. We've got Dr. Ron Paul and his crew with Liberty Highlights for the week. We've got uh, stuff on solar from Sean Mills. We've got uh, a bunch of stuff on handyman stuff and uh, DeWalt cordless lawn gear from Tim Toolman Cook. Uh, a whole treatise on starting a business in the cottage food industry with Nicole Sauce and a few others. Doc Bones on dental extractions and a grid down scenario. So we got a great podcast coming today. If you're watching this live, <clears throat> the whole thing will be available in the audio format on all the platforms and everything, and at the link that's in the uh, video notes below, about one after, after one hour after this live stream ends. And my disclaimer is always, I will never contact you for any personal information or private chat, etc., in the video comments or on social media in general. If you want to talk to me, you need to use the email address, jack at the com. TSPC in the subject line, Somebody starts asking you for any kind of information at all, just because you see an image that looks like me or my logo doesn't mean it's me. Uh, next week, I'm going to actually have a screenshot for you of what I'm talking about that happens particularly on YouTube with people claiming that they are me with WhatsApp numbers. And Jack Spirico has never used WhatsApp in his life. So disclaimer done. Let's talk about what happened last night and the imagery of it more than anything else. Um, let's go ahead and pull up the image in question here. Uh, so he says it looks like Emperor Palpatine. Uh, there's been a lot of comparisons to V for Vendetta. Let's pull up one of those real quick. That's just dropped uh, Biden right into the V for Vendetta scene of the dictator speaking, and it, it works dramatically well. Uh, that's the actual one of the dictator speaking. Uh, screenshots of the dictator looking down at everybody from the movie, the red theme, it all works perfectly. Lots of comparisons being made to that. Kind of a little bit tighter image for those that are on the video right now of, of Biden with his fists in the air, the Marine officers behind him, the red lit background. The biggest thing out of this is if you don't know what's going on, if you haven't seen this, and I have the main image right now where he's talking, he's got the two Marines behind him, it's a more wide, like a 16 by 9 shot, 
uh, American flags uh, displayed, red light on the walls. If you if you looked at this and you you didn't see this yet, you didn't hear about this yet. If somebody showed this to you, would you not think, Al, some of the the right-wing uh, meme makers just started playing with the image and photoshopping it and, and what have you. You would think, yeah, this is like somebody did something here. This this can't be what Joe Biden's team thought was a good idea. This can't be what it really looks like. That's what you would think if you didn't see it on TV yourself. I, I, I want to talk about another thing with this, though, as bad as it is. Let me pull it back up again for a second. This reeks, like the whole presentation reeks of like B-movie, dystopia movie. If, if you actually compare the image to, for instance, what the the intentionally creepy stuff looks like in the dictatorship that is in the movie V for Vendetta, it's actually much better. It's, 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 it's done better. If you're looking for the same effect, it's done better. Biden's is actually kind of just poorly executed. If this is what you're trying to do, right? We're not, I'm not saying there was a, I am saying it's a bad decision, but I'm saying in of itself, it looks B movie-ish. It looks like somebody that was like, you know, we're going to make this dystopian film about the fall of the United States and the president becoming some sort of uh, communist or fascist dictator. Take your pick. And uh, but we don't have that much money. Now, now you have to understand something. Number one, these people have as much money as they want. There is no budget restriction on setting up the cinematography for a speech of the president of the United States at all. It, it, they, they have done things like flown aircraft overhead while it's going on and stuff like that. Right. So it didn't have to be that. Number two, it's not like they had the idea, they put all the stuff together, and they turned it on, and while it was going on, they were like, yeah, that's not really what we were going for. They knew exactly what it would look like. They knew exactly what they were doing when they did this. They knew exactly what the result was. That You can't ever truly know the result of the reaction of the people that see it. But you can know what it's going to look like when it happens. And so it's not well done. And it, 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 it's very poor optics. And I think the results are not going to be what you would think that they would want. But they knew it was going to happen. So maybe it is what they want. This whole thing looks exactly like what is being compared to a dystopian movie about the fall of a nation. And we have to ask why. Now, there's some people that are very, very angry, and they're, they're, they're screaming and yelling, and it, it, like they're going to a bad place we talked about earlier this week. I think that's one thing they want. They want the right to lose its mind over this. Now, you can miscalculate this, too. There's a lot of talk in the media. And when I, when I said I was going to have this discussion today on Twitter about the optics, not the substance of the speech... One moron clown, I don't know why some of these moron clowns even follow me, said that's what all the right wings do today. They don't want to talk about the disturbing problem inside the speech that makes them look so bad in their ultra-mega fascist ways. 
Okay. Actually, actually, I had to take my kids, my grand, or I had to go pick my grandkids up today, uh, for homeschooling using what my wife does it. So I got to listen to AM radio. The only thing, the only thing that the right is really talking about in the media today is the substance of the speech. I'll tell you why I'm a little bit bored with it. Everybody's like, oh my God, he said that. Oh my God, he said that. Oh my God, he said that. He said the same shit all week. This is a typical, this is a typical presentation of this type of a speech from a politician. They go out and they soundbite it all week long. They have their press secretary or whoever speaks for them, if they're not as big as the president, soundbite it all week long. Then they put all the shit together that they said all week long and they all say in a speech. I was like, wow, you're idiots if you think that way. There wasn't a single thing that the dementia patient that occupies the White House said last night that he had not said over the previous five days in pieces, parts, all over. It's all the same shit. It always will be the same shit. That's the way they get him. Like, he's so dis- dysfunctional. It's not just everybody does that pattern anyway. But in this case, it's like if we get him to say each piece a little at a time and then we put him in front of a teleprompter and put it together, he might get through it a little easier and not go talking about corn pop and, and chains and people touching his hairy legs or something. Maybe we can keep him on point for 25 minutes to get this done. Right. So I don't I, I'm not really interested in what he said. I'm not really interested in pointing out the hypocrisy. I don't really think it's necessary that every time something comes up like about Mar-a-Lago being raided to start talking about Hillary Clinton's emails. Well, it's hypocrisy. I don't need to call the Department of Hypocrisy hypocrites. That speaks for itself at this point. If you're going to talk about an issue, talk about this issue today now, not because the left is just like, oh, we're going to talk about Hillary's email again. You all look like idiots. You all look like idiots arguing back. So I don't care in this speech about the substance because we're going to have this same discussion all the way through to the election, but that's what this is really about. Here's what I think. Number one, I think your government just told you you're the enemy. I think they just told you you're the enemy without having to worry about a single word that was in that speech in this picture. This picture says, if you oppose me, you are the enemy. That's what it says. I don't care if you like that. I don't care if you want to believe it. I don't care if you want to defend Brandon. I don't care if you hate Brandon. That's what this picture was designed to say. You are the enemy, and we have the power. The problem with that is you would think the Democrats would be struggling to keep every seat in the House that they possibly can save, and that the dam will keep the Senate, maybe even grow their seats. This doesn't help that. There's nothing that was done out there that actually galvanized the left one bit. Now, I will tell you that, of course, they're going to defend it. But the left is so predictable. The diehard left, if he lost his mind in the middle of that speech, dropped his pants and took a deuce on the ground, pulled them back up without wiping, and went back into a speech, they would defend that. They would say, this, this, he's demonstrating how Donald Trump has shit on America with ultra-MAGAism. That's what they would do. That's what they, so I don't care that they'll defend it. Defending it does not mean energized. Who did this just energize? Who just energized? Who got energized by this? Ultra MAGA. Notice how they changed, that little subtle change there, by the way. 
By the way, we will talk one little bit about the substance. You notice he called it MAGA. Not MAGA. MAGA. It's been MAGA for, for five and a half years. It's been MAGA. Last night, it turned into MAGA. And if you listen to the talk radio or uh, mainstream news, right and left, everybody's on script. It just became MAGA. A memo went out. Everybody got it. Right and left alike. MAGA. Why? It sounds a little bit more guttural. It sounds a little bit more bad. We don't want to talk about what MAGA means. Make America great again. It's too positive of a message. For those of you who think that I support Trump over that, I'm saying that it's a tagline. Make America great. If you're opposed to America being great, what the hell's wrong with you? If you're an American anyway, you would like America to do well, I would think. Now nah, we'll build back better. Basically the same slogan. But everybody got the memo. But now what you have, this, this idea that, well, he drew this line between mainstream Republicans and ultra-mager Republicans. No. No, no, no. The average person, over 70 million people, that voted for the orange man, just heard last night, you are the enemy, unless you do what I say. It's a threat to our democracy! And the only way to save our democracy is for everybody to agree with one party's definition of what we should do. So we can have democracy through a unified single-party system. That's what this says. That's what this picture says all by itself. You are with us or you are against us. But what I think is really going on here, they know they're going to lose. Now, here's the thing. As bad as things are, and with a midterm traditionally not being good for sitting presidents that already control the combined chambers. Traditionally, it's not. Go look it up. Look how many times a president came into midterms holding both chambers and held both chambers in a midterm. You're going to have to go way, 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 way back. Most of you weren't alive. It's so it's traditionally bad as it is. Okay. They won't lose as bad as you're going to think that they're going to lose. The country's lost its mind, but they're going to lose. They may lose the Senate. They may not. They may come out of this with 51 senators instead of 50 and, and have and lose the House by about, I'm going to say, 40 seats disadvantaged. That's, that's what you, you, you're probably going to come out of this with. You would think this would make uh, Newt Gingrich's uh, thing back in the 90s when, when the Republicans took over the midterms from Bill Clinton look like a joke. That was a lance, an epic landslide. I don't think you're going to get that this time. That's how divided the country is. So what's the play with this imagery? What are you doing when you're putting this imagery up in advance, right? Why would you do this? For the aftermath. What I've been hearing out of the left this week is all of America's problems are coming from the right and the ultra magas and they're destroying our democracy. The, 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 the right has no power right now. Politically speaking. 
Zero. Don't have the Senate. Got Kamala heals up Harris, breaking the tie. So the Democrats got the Senate. Democrats have the House. Not by a huge margin, but enough to do anything they want in the House. And they got Brandon ready to sign anything they throw in front of him because he doesn't even know what he's signing. But somehow the, the right is responsible here. They're playing this image up right now so that when they lose, they can blame the evil Republicans, and they mean you if you voted that way. They mean you if you didn't vote for Brandon. We're all going under the bus together. I don't vote. I'm an anarchist. I think your two-party system is really a one-party system. It's an illusion. It's designed to control you, and you're looking at it happen right here, right now. And you're being controlled with it. But I'm right wing. I get told that all the time. I'm right wing. So anybody who votes Republican for the dog catcher is being thrown under this bus as the enemies of America and made out to literally be terrorists at this point. What I want to finish up with a little bit is why do people like me get labeled right wing right now? You guys know I've spewed hate at the orange man. I spewed hate at Bush. I spewed hate at Obama. I spewed hate at all politicians, and I've done it for 14 years. But what I am is I'm factual. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm not, I'm never lying. I can be wrong. It happens. I usually come out and say I was wrong. I got this wrong. I got this fact. I thought this was a fact. It turned out it didn't, it didn't get, you know, didn't vet out or whatever. And I'm sorry. But I try to be factual on everything that I report. And when I say I'm speaking with an opinion, you've literally heard me pause and say, right now I'm giving you my opinion. Just to be clear, when I'm covering these things, I try to do that, delineate always between facts and opinion. I did that with the covates. This is science. This is my opinion. And this is my opinion of science, right? And it's supposed science that's not science. I've always done that. How do I get labeled right wing? It's always happened a little bit, and that's because... I am an actual free market capitalist agorist, so you must be right wing if you take that position, says the ignorant crowd with no idea what those things actually are. But right now, it's even more prevalent. And do you know why? I'll tell you why. It's because I'm actually throwing hatred at both sides. And I'm throwing it as equally as it is deserved by fact. All right? That's what I'm doing. And it turns out, when you have somebody on the left that is defending indefensible positions, and they know it, but they've made themselves comfortable with them by pretending they're not as bad as they are, and you shine a light on it, that it makes their side actually look worse, even though you're calling both sides thieving scum, you can have a scum level that is higher on one side than the other. So you got thieving scum, and one side happens to be a bit higher than the other. Turns out, when you point out that the left's hill to die on right now is the ability to talk to children in kindergarten, first and second and third grade, about the teacher's sex life, it makes the left look worse than the right. For all the bad the right does, 
That actually makes you look really bad. Being a freaking person talking to young children about your sex life, I don't care that they're transgendered. I don't care they're gender neutral. I don't care that they're Asian, Taiwanese, pansexual, reversion sexuals. I don't care what they are. I don't care if you're talking about completely straight freaking people, cisgendered, whatever. If, if, if I sent my kid to kindergarten, And they came home and they told me that you talked to them about your sex life with your partner. I am probably going to bury you in a hole. And that sounds radical. Oh, it's radical. It wasn't radical 10 years ago. And in 1985, four or five people would have been calling you up and offering you to use their backhoe. You don't talk to somebody else's kids about your sex life when they're that age and sent to school to learn C-spot run. So that makes me right wing. Did I point it out? Did I point it out? You don't say that it's okay to have men compete in sports with women and destroy scholarships, records, and all the things that women went for. You don't say that and not look bad, even to people that are on your side when they really see it clearly. You can't go out there saying you're talking about science. And then when somebody says, what is a woman? You say a person that identifies as a woman. And you say, well, what is what are they identifying as? And they say a woman. And you say, but what is a woman? And they can't answer it. And then they say, my science. And then they tell you, you have to do all these other things because of their science. You can't look good doing that. You can't even really look good to your side. When it's clearly pointed out, the thing that has made the left lose its mind the most in the last few years has not been what the right has said about them. It has been the right simply providing them a platform to be seen clearly for what they're saying and doing. One of the most hated Twitter accounts on the planet is what? Libs of TikTok. What do they do? Do they go and edit a bunch of shit together and change things and comment on it? Do they have people like me that come out and say, look at this idiot over here? All libs of TikTok does is go to TikTok, get videos of completely brainwashed, idiotic liberals defending things, like saying a woman is anything, and it's okay for a man to get in a combat sport with a woman and crush her skull because she because the guy wears a dress. And it's okay for a kindergarten teacher to talk to a, a, a five-year-old about their genitals. All they do is take that, put it onto Twitter, and say, look, here's what they're saying. All they did was actually spread the message that these people supposedly wanted heard, and they lose their minds about it. Why? Because when you actually see it, it looks so bad. So we got to go back to Brandon here with this imagery. And I, I don't, I don't blame or credit Brandon for this image. I don't think Joe Biden had a damn bit of input on this image. I don't think he, he did anything except do the best he could to halfway memorize his speech with his dementia and read a teleprompter. I don't even think he knew what he looked like when he was giving it. If you've ever stood up and given a speech like this, Talk to a group like this with lights in your eyes. You can't see anything about what you look like. And then he wandered off with Jill and thought, I did a good job, and they gave him some ice cream, and he went to bed. But people were behind us. And 
a long, 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 long ago, right after I got out of the Army, before I left Pennsylvania, I did some lights and sound work for a guy. Basically, I was a roadie. He did lights and sound for bands. I didn't know anything about what to do. All he would do is like hang these gels here and put these lights here and run these cables and stuff like that. He paid me cash money. And I got out, I'd hang out in the bar all night long until the band was done playing. The amount of time that man put into making sure everything was the way it was supposed to be for some garage band to come up and play for two to four hours in a coal bar, coal town bar in Pennsylvania was impressive. How much do you think went into this? That's why I tell you that story. How much do you think went in to setting this image up to look exactly this way? Do you think that unlike the TikTok liberal thing where they put the picture of these people or the thing about what these people are saying and they, they put it on display and then they're like, oh, we didn't really want everybody to see. Do you not think that they knew that this image would be circulating today and be being talked about today? They knew it. They knew what this would do. They fully intended to get the reaction that they're getting. Because when somebody says, well, Joe Biden's a dictator, and then he mumbles around and feeds ice cream to a seagull, that person's not taken seriously. Biden's not the problem. The state's the problem. He's just the guy they put in the image this time. But what I want to finish with Because I do think pointing out hypocrisy, if it's not constantly and 90% of your message is worth doing, what do you think would have happened? What do you think would be going on today? Even on the right, if Donald Trump, when he was president, did a, did a speech attacking the left the way that Biden attacked the right last night with these optics, with two Marines standing behind him illuminated in darkness but with red light behind them, so that their gloves glow like orbs, with the flags on both sides, with the lights and the runway, they could easily be compared to a dystopian movie. What would be going on right now if Donald Trump gave this speech? Now, to really drive the point home, what if Ron DeSantis gave that speech, just like that? Well, at least he's a legitimate presidential candidate, so maybe lose their mind. What if it was Ted Cruz? At least you know his name. I'm telling you right now, If a Republican alderman on a city council gave a speech like this, it would be front and center in the MSN for 30 days about what a, a horrible picture this points to of our future. About what a great threat, threat every Republican is. And if you don't immediately denounce this, There'd be calls. Have you renounced Alderman, you know, Seymour from Sheboyganville for his video? And people would be like, I didn't even see it. Oh, you're a horrible person. That's what would be going on. So why do you do it? Because when you defend the absurd long enough in a society that lives and breathes on media and what they're told from the idiot box And the idiot box used to be a television only. Now the idiot box is a computer monitor, it's a television, it's a cell phone. When the absurdity is defended, and that's the actual game here, boys and girls. When absurdity is defended, it is accepted. And this absurdity will be the next thing the American sheep will swallow and accept. That something like this is indeed 
acceptable. Not you, not me, but more people than you would think are going to accept this. And when they accept this, what does it mean for America, Western culture, and the average person, no matter which side they choose? See, the people that choose the dark side suffer equally under it as those who resist it. I'm going to just leave it there for a few more seconds before I sign off. We'll leave it there in silence. You take it in and tell me if I got anything wrong. If you think I did, don't use the live chat. Use the comments after the video is over because I'm going to want to read them. Let me know. What do I have wrong here? Well, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up for the week. Hope you enjoyed today's, uh, not today, just today's show, but the entire week of shows today. I felt that there was a couple times this week where my timing was a little off and I don't feel like I did the best job for you guys this week. I feel like I did a good job, but in some instances not a great one. I apologize for that. Having, uh, uh, systems go down two days in a row during live feeds did not aid with that. Also had a lot of stuff going on here at the ranch this week. Uh, but I will endeavor to do a better job for you guys next week. Let me know what you want to hear about next week over the weekend and maybe I'll do it. Just email me at jack at the survival podcast dot com with TSPC in the subject line and let me know what you want to hear about. Remember to tech, check out the TSP swag shop. You can find that at TSP swag, TSP com. We have some really cool shirts and stuff and more is coming. Uh, Show off your TSP pride. That's all I'm saying. We're trying to get the gift sh- or the, the swag shop off the ground. We want to do a lot of cool and innovative things. Right now, we're basically recycling some older designs and stuff like that. Gauge interest. If we can get some life into it, I'll tell you what, we'll do some really, really cool stuff going down the road. With that, please tune in next week. And again, let me know what you want to hear over the weekend. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. They gonna bail you out or just run you around. They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you to Make your own way The others will follow Revolution is you.